So today we're covering Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15. It's the last battle and the Great White Throne Judgment. There's two important events in prophecy. And so the last battle is where Satan is released from the abyss at the end of the thousand-year righteous reign of Jesus Christ on earth. And we also call that the millennial reign. And Satan goes and gathers all the unbelievers born during the millennium for one last try at attacking all the believers in Jerusalem, all the saints in Jerusalem. And then there's the great white throne judgment. And this is what is also called the second resurrection or comes straight after the second resurrection. And it's the resurrection of condemnation. So everyone who's judged at this time, everyone who is partaker of this resurrection, is condemned. They're all unbelievers. It's the resurrection of unbelievers. And what happens to all these people is that they are judged and then cast into the lake of fire. This is called the second death, as we'll find out, and this is the real hell. And this represents eternal separation from fellowship with God. So what I want to do is firstly pray, and then we'll quickly run through the chart, and we'll find out where we're at as far as the order of events go. So, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for what you did on the cross so that we do not have to go and be a part of this great white throne judgment, Lord, this judgment of condemnation. Lord, you paid our fine so we can be declared innocent and all we need to do is simply believe and repent. Repent and believe. That's all we need to do is just have a heart that says, I choose to submit to God and I trust that what Jesus did on the cross was the full and final payment for all my sins. So you see, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So up here on the chart we have the different stages of events. So you've got the church age. It's 2,000 years roughly since Jesus was born, died, rose again and ascended to heaven. And we're coming, I believe, very close to the seven-year tribulation. And just before the tribulation, the believers are raptured. And so all the believers in the church who have died and are alive in the church age get their glorified bodies, their resurrection bodies, just before the tribulation. And we're in heaven for seven years during that tribulation. This is a time of judgment. At the end of this time of judgment, all the people who are alive on the earth at the end of the tribulation are judged. The unbelievers are sent to Hades or Sheol, to the compartment, as we know, is torments in the middle of the earth down there. And the believers are blessed to go into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of the tribulation, Satan is thrown or locked in the abyss. He's bound, chained in the abyss. Satan is shut up in the abyss. He's locked in the abyss with a strong chain. An angel comes and chains him up. And we believe most of the, or all the demons are locked up with him because there's no deception in this new world that Jesus is going to rule for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, there's no demonic influence. But then at the end, Satan is released, and it's called the final war, the final battle. And basically, that's what we're going to look at today, what happens there at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. 
why it happens, how it happens. And also, after the Satan release, we have the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection. All unbelievers are judged after the thousand years have ended, so after the final battle. And they are sent to the lake of fire, or what we properly call hell. So that's basically it. So what we're talking about is these two events at the very end, right before the new heavens and the new earth. So that's how it all fits. The church age is finished, the raptures happened, the tribulation has happened, Jesus' second coming has happened at the end of the tribulation. Then there's a thousand year rule and reign of Jesus Christ and Satan is then released at the end of that thousand years and that's where we're at now um, in our journey through Revelation. So let's start reading at Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. Okay, so Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, Satan is released and he gathers his massive army. And when does it happen? Well, it happens when the thousand years have expired. So what does it mean? What does it mean the thousand years have expired? It's the end of the millennium. Yeah, it's the end of the thousand year rule of Jesus Christ. Okay. So for a thousand years, there has been a completely righteous and beautiful reign on a gloriously restored earth with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. So I just want to remind us of what it's like or what it will be like in the millennium, so we can put into perspective why these people have rebelled against God, why these people have refused, okay? Why would they? In such a perfect environment, why would they refuse? So let's find out just how good it is, or it will be, in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So firstly, the New Testament specifically promises a literal reign of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33 says, He will be great, talking about Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So that's talking about this millennial kingdom. He is going to be the king of Israel. Next fact that we know about the millennial reign is that King David will also have a prominent place and he will be the prince of Israel, not the king, but the prince of Israel during this thousand years. And there's lots of references for that in your notes. There's going to be blessing and security for national Israel in the millennial earth. It's Amos 9, 11 to 15. The millennium is a time of purity and devotion to God for all believers. And there's going to be no more false religion, false prophets, or false teachers. And you can see Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9 for that. This is a really special one for me. 
the relationship that believers will have with Jesus will be much more intimate and close than is normal now. Isaiah 65.24 says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. That's pretty cool, eh? No more prayers bouncing off the ceiling or feeling like that. It would just be amazing with Jesus, not just on the earth with us, but in our hearts and in our minds in a greater sense too. Israel, the nation of Israel, will be the most prominent nation on the millennial earth. They will be like the world superpower. So that's Ezekiel 17, 22-24. There's going to be a rebuilt temple and restored temple service on the millennial earth to remind people of Jesus' payment for their sins on the cross. And there's lots of verses for that, mainly in Ezekiel. And in the resurrected state, the saints will be given responsibility in the millennial earth according to the faithful service. Okay, so this is about us. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ. This is our opportunity to enjoy the benefits, the reward of being faithful to God now. So what we do now matters. So all the people, the Christians who have died in this church age and the people who are still alive, who are believers, will be raptured, take up here, and resurrected. So if you're already dead, you're getting your body. Remember, they're already in heaven. We live in heaven and then we come back with Jesus and we rule and reign. Again, I'm not going to read out all the verses that are in your notes. The believers who survive the seven-year tribulation will go into the millennium and will have children. And the earth will be repopulated by the believers who survive the tribulation. And that's found in Isaiah 65.23. There will be a different ecology with animals living at peace with each other and being altogether harmless. So, for example, Isaiah 11.69 and 65.25, and one of those verses says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb. So, no more foxes eating the lambs in the paddocks. And there's going to be a different biology with animals eating only plants. And Isaiah 65.25 says, The lion will eat straw like the ox. And there's going to be perfect justice and fairness. There's no more social injustice or corruption on the earth. Okay, There's going to be perfect government. And that's Isaiah 65.21 and 22. And people are going to live for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, up to a thousand years, because that's the length of the millennium, right? So the way I read it is that there's not going to be any death for the believers. The unbelievers, people debate that, whether they're going to die at a hundred or make it to the end, and then be a part of this rebellion we're going to find out about soon. But the believers, I believe, they're going to live right to the end. It's going to be a different world environment, like in the Garden of Eden and the people before the flood, they lived for you know almost a thousand years. Well, this will be like that, a renewed earth. So it would be no surprise if we live right to the end. Well, if those people who are mortal will live right to the end. We'll be in a resurrected body. We'll definitely live to the end. Now, the millennial world system will be completely different from the current evil world system created and run by Satan. With Jesus creating his own righteous world system and he will not tolerate any evil and you can see psalm 2 and psalm 72 
So I hope you get an idea. I mean, we've studied this in detail previously. It's just a quick revision. What an awesome place the earth will be to live with Jesus as the king over all the earth. This is a fantastic time to be alive. So if you're born into this world, it's just awesome. So verse 7 in Revelation 20 says Satan will be released. So what this means is that for the thousand years of Jesus reigning on this earth, Satan was bound and inactive. He could not go out and deceive the nations while he was bound. That's the purpose of his being bound. But when the thousand years are over, he will be released and successfully deceive people, the unbelievers, and organize them into an army who will rebel against God. And this is what we read back in verses 1 to 3. So I'll read those. It's Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And that's also the abyss. It's the same word, abysso, in the Greek. And a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So just an anonymous angel is all it took to bind Satan. So, why is Satan bound? Because there's a whole new world system, which I'm looking forward to. During the thousand years when Jesus is ruling on earth, it's going to be a righteous rule. Because currently... Satan, the father of lies, is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 verse 2. And his main business is to deceive people, right? Therefore, the current world system reflects Satan's corrupt values. But that will all change when Jesus comes to power. There will be no room for Satan when Jesus sets up his perfectly righteous world system and government. So Satan's out and Jesus is in. For the entire millennium. So. His prison in verse 7, where is Satan released from? Well, as we read in verses 1 to 3, he's locked up in the abyss or the bottomless pit. That's Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Now what is the abyss? Well, the abyss or the bottomless pit is the demonic prison in the middle of the earth where Satan, and we assume all the other demons, have been chained up for the duration of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And just to give you some background on the abyss, we can go to Luke 831, Jesus is talking to the demoniac, that man wandering the tombs. He could not be chained up, he just broke the chains. He was possessed by like 2,000 demons, legion, the demons called themselves. And when Jesus came and cast them out, they said, please don't cast us into the abyss. Please don't make us go into the abyss. And Jesus says, all right, I won't. This is paraphrasing now. <laughs> you can go into the swine. All right. And they went to the swine, and the swine went all down the hill. Those pigs all committed suicide in the Sea of Galilee there. Gennesaret. So they did not want to go into the abyss. Why? Because it's a prison for the demons. Now, verse 8. 
and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So, there's a few things to notice here. Firstly, notice how many people are deceived. How many people are unbelievers, okay? It's as the sand of the sea. And where they're from? From all over the world, from all nations. And that's what the four corners of the earth means. From the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, yeah? It's like the compass directions. Now, an important question to ask now is who is deceived? Not where they're from and how many, but who? Well, the answer is, it's the unbelievers. They are all destroyed by fire, by the fire that comes down from heaven and and cooks them, it roasts them, annihilates them, their bodies anyway. So, all the unbelievers die and go to torments in hate, their spirit and soul. Those who remain on the earth are believers and they will go on into eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. So, what's going on here? It's important that we understand that at the very beginning, only believers will go into the millennial reign. Okay, So, at the very start of the thousand years, there's only believers. There's resurrected Old Testament saints, resurrected tribulation saints, and the resurrected church saints. And there's these people believers who have survived the tribulation, who have become believers during the tribulation, have not been killed by the Antichrist, and Jesus welcomes them into the millennium. So none of those people will be a part of this rebellion, but as we said before, they will have kids who, like them, will be born with a sinful nature, and like them, will have to make up their own minds on whether or not to repent and accept God's sacrifice for their sins and become a part of his family again. So what it's showing us here is that many of the children born into the millennial kingdom will not choose to be born again, despite these perfect conditions, despite being born into a perfect world with Jesus ruling in perfect righteousness. The people who survive the tribulation will be like us, flesh and blood, mortal bodies. They can marry, they can have kids and stuff. For us resurrected people, we don't do that anymore. The Holy Spirit only comes into you once you become a believer. So we're all born separated from God. And even the people born into millennium, or born during the millennium, will be separated from God when they're born. And then sometime during their life, they're going to have to make a choice. And it appears that they have until the end of the millennium to make that choice. So there's three things at the moment which keep us from God, and that is Satan and the demons. There's the world system around us, all this negative influence, and there's our sinful nature. So the only thing that's going to be drawing us away from God in the millennium is our sinful nature. And so people are still born with a sinful nature. So what's happening here is that many of the children born into the millennial kingdom will not choose to be born again. It's incredible, but what's happening is this. Their pride and their love of sin will prevent them from humbling themselves and receiving God's free gift of forgiveness, despite being born into a perfect environment. It's just like the Garden of Eden, but even better, because Jesus is going to be there all day, every day. So, 
Another question, another way of asking this question is, if Jesus has reigned so wonderfully for a thousand years, then why will so many on this utopian earth rebel? Well, they will do it, and God will allow it, as a final demonstration of man's rebellion and complete depravity. So during the thousand years, there will be outward conformity to Jesus' rule. That's going to be required. But the heart change, the inward embrace of his lordship, will still be up to the individual. God has always, right from the Garden of Eden, given man a free choice to choose to love him or hate him. So those unbelievers who endured, and I'm using that word endured because it would be a very difficult time to live as an unbeliever, surrounded by perfect righteousness, because in this world it's easy to live as an unbeliever because you're surrounded by unrighteousness and it suits you just right, just nicely. But in the new millennium, when Jesus rules a thousand years, it's going to be difficult to be an unbeliever because everywhere around you is going to be convicting you. Everything around you is going to be convicting you. and You know that what you believe is not right, but you still choose to rebel. You still choose not to humble yourselves and you still choose to fight against God. So those unbelievers who endure the perfect world will jump at the chance to finally express a sinful nature and the hatred towards God. Because we're all born with a sinful nature and hatred towards God. And it's like kids growing up in a Christian family. They go to church and everything, and then, bang, as soon as they leave home, what do they do? A lot of them rebel. Because they never had the opportunity before, but now they can. It's a bit like that. So why did God set it up this way and allow this to happen? Well, in this we see more of the important reason God has for the Millennial Kingdom and allowing the spinal rebellion. For all of human history, man has wanted to blame his sinful condition on his environment. Now, you've probably heard those excuses, right? Ah, oh, I turned out this way because of the family I came from or the neighborhood I grew up in or I was abused, or, you know, basically, I can't help it because I'm this way because this happened to me, or this person treated me bad, or I was let down by this family, or whatever it might be, okay? But with the millennial kingdom of Jesus, God will give mankind a thousand years of a perfect environment with no Satan, no crime, no violence, no evil, or no other social pathology, all this other bad stuff that's around us. But at the end of the thousand years, many will still rebel against God. And this will be their first opportunity to rebel against God. And what this does is it powerfully demonstrates that the problem, the central problem that keeps us from God is our sinful nature. It's not our environment. Our environment is bad because of our sin. It's not that we sin because of our bad environment. This physically cursed and morally diseased, festering and pussy environment we live in now I've used those words to help you to see this how bad our environment really is but it's not the environment that causes us to sin okay it's our sin which causes our environment to be so full of abuse violence 
corruption, lust, pornography, lies, theft, drug use, divorce, unfaithfulness, and a general hatred toward all things true and godly. This is all a symptom of the terminal sickness that lives in all of us called sin. We need a cure. We need some medicine. And that medicine, of course, is Jesus. The forgiveness of sin and the power to overcome sin. We have freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. And we have the promise of the resurrection, a new body without sin. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. So, a quote from a guy called Hostie. It will be proved once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and the new birth, remains at heart only evil and at enmity with God. So, apart from the new birth, apart from being born again, they will remain at enmity, separated from God. So, we need to be born again. We need to humble ourselves. We need to say, not my way, not my will, but your way, your will, God, for me. And I accept your sacrifice on the cross as the payment for my sin. And we receive that by faith. So in verse 8, coming back to Revelation chapter 20, it says, gather them together to battle. Now, (laughs) this is, you wouldn't make a movie out of this battle because it wouldn't be a very long movie. They all gather, and then fire comes down from heaven, and it's all finished. It's not even a fight. It's really quite a letdown, if you're looking for action. So Gog and Magog, why does it use these words, Gog and Magog? Because you find these words, Gog and Magog, used in Ezekiel 38 and 39, where it describes a different battle. Some people would get confused and say it must be the same battle, because it's Gog and Magog. One is Russia, and one is the leader of Russia. But what it's doing, it's using a familiar symbol of God's and Israel's enemies. Okay, So this is Gog and Magog are now being used in a symbolic sense as the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. And Satan has always been an enemy of Israel. So I've got a table in your notes there, and it's got a comparison between the Ezekiel 38-39 battle and the last battle in Revelation 27-10. So I'll just quickly go through that. And you'll see that they're actually two very different battles. So the first thing is who or where is attacked. In Ezekiel 38-39, the battle occurs in the mountains of Israel. And in Revelation 27-10, the battle surrounds Jerusalem. Now, who attacks? Well, in Ezekiel 38-39, it's only some select nations, mainly those to the north of Israel, which include Russia, Turkey, and Iran, plus some other nations, and they're all men of war, they're armies. But in Revelation 27-10, it's just anyone from all the nations over all the earth who are unbelievers. Now the next question is, when does it happen? Well, Ezekiel 38-39, that battle, occurs just before the tribulation at about the time of the rapture of the church. When does the battle, the last battle happen in Revelation 27-10? to 
what happens at the end of the thousand years after Satan has been released. So, very different time period. Now, what is the result? How does God win this battle? Well, in Ezekiel 38, 39, God uses great hail, fire and brimstone, flooding rain and earthquake and confusion. So the armies of the different nations there, Iran, Russia and Turkey and Sudan and some others, they kill each other in addition to all this other stuff that's happening, this natural phenomenon or supernatural phenomenon. But in the Revelation 27 to 10 last battle, is just a universal destruction by fire. Fire comes down from heaven, from God in heaven, and destroys every single rebel. Now, what happens to Satan? Well, after the Ezekiel 38-39 battle, Satan gets to rule the world, rule the earth for seven years. And he does that by possessing the Antichrist. What happens to Satan after the last battle in Revelation 20? Well, he's cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And what happens after the battle? Well, after the Ezekiel 38-39 battle, God is glorified in Israel. The people of Israel use the weapons, the nuclear weapons, for fuel to power their nuclear power stations and produce electricity. And they're going to be burying the dead for seven months. What happens after the Revelation 20 battle? Well, the great white throne judgment happens. And then God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And then we go into eternity. So it has to be two very different battles. Two different battles. So now we go to verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 20. And it says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So all the unbelievers jump at this opportunity to rebel against God because they've never really wanted to submit to his rule. It's been a forced submission. And now God gives them the freedom to choose. They choose Satan. And the strategy of this vast satanic army is clear to destroy God's people and Jerusalem, just like they tried to at the Battle of Armageddon then as well. Satan hates the Jews, Satan hates Jerusalem, Satan hates God. In verse 9 it says, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So as I said before, we shouldn't even call this a final battle because there is no battle. The fight is over before it begins. So at this point, God finally deals with the devil and his followers forever. That's it. There will be no more unbelievers on the earth. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he's cast in with the beast and the false prophet. The beast is the Antichrist and the false prophet is the one who causes people to be deceived and follow the Antichrist. They were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand years. And we read that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. So when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, he judges the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet by casting them into the lake of fire. So those two, 
the Antichrist and the false prophet have already been in the lake of fire for a full thousand years. So, so much for the doctrine of annihilationism. The false teaching that when a person dies, they just cease to exist. So, in eternal punishment, a thousand years is just the beginning. It never ends. Okay, They will stay there forever, and they will suffer and be tormented forever. And we see that in verse 10. It says, tormented day and night forever and ever. So, there's two ways of saying the same thing. Day and night forever and ever. So, is there really eternal punishment in hell? For unbelievers, yes. The words mean exactly what they appear to mean. And there's a quote by John Valvord. He says, There will be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically that the everlasting punishment of the lost than here in mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever, literally to the ages of ages. So, uh, read that again. There would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than here in mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever, literally to the ages of ages. Now, we move on to the great white throne judgment. So, let's read verses 11 to 15. So, this is for me, one of the most fearsome and awe-inspiring passages in the Word of God. This is the great white throne judgment. So Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I've got a quote from Hal Lindsey. God saved most of the teaching about the final judgment and hell for Jesus himself because it is such a horrible thing that God wanted to say it himself to give it the weight that it should have in our minds. And do you realize that Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven? And he spoke about hell many times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. I've got a quote from the Gospel Coalition here. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There is no denying that Jesus knew, believed and warned about the absolute reality of hell. And I just want to point out that God's justice system works in a similar way to our Western court system. So if I did something wrong, I would be arrested and put into a temporary lockup, a temporary prison. Then, after my trial, after I was found guilty, then I'd be transferred to the prison where I'd complete my sentence. That's usually what happens. 
So another, the reason I say that is because the guilty, the unbelievers, they go to Hades and then what happens now is they will go and be cast into the lake of fire after their judgment. That's the parallel there. Now I've got another quote from the gospelcoalition.org. Jesus has to talk about hell because it is a fate that awaits all people apart from him. Because of Adam's sin, we're all guilty and deserve God's eternal punishment. Contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. It's our default destination. We need a rescuer or we stand condemned. So we're left with two options. Stay in a state of depravity and be eternally punished or submit to the Saviour and accept his gift of redemption. And elsewhere in the same article it says, Our understanding of hell shapes our view of the gospel, God's holiness and our depravity. If we don't accept the reality of hell, we won't rightly understand the glory of the gospel. So what this quote is saying is that any doctrine that diminishes the severity of hell is in effect diluting or limiting or diminishing God's holiness and also doing the same with man's sinfulness. That God is not as holy as the Bible says he is, that God says he is in the Bible, and man is not as sinful as the Bible says man is. And that means that the conclusion from that train of thought is that man is less deserving of punishment. We deserve a lesser punishment. And that's why people don't like to believe in hell. Because to believe in hell necessarily makes you realize just how holy God is and how sinful we are to necessitate such a extreme punishment. So I'm going to divert a little bit here. The angels will also be judged and sent to the lake of fire. So this is interesting. It's not specifically talked about in this passage, but I think it's worth bringing up. So the demons, the unrepentant angels, the angels who rebelled, some of them are already locked up. Okay, Some of them are already awaiting judgment. First of all, the scriptures also tell us that while Jesus was in paradise or Abraham's bosom for three days between his death and resurrection, Jesus did go to another place that is in the center of the earth called Tartarus where he preached to these very wicked angels. So Tartarus is separate to Hades. Remember, it's like the abyss or the bottomless pit. It's a place reserved for the demons, not for people. Now, it seems that Tartarus contained the most dangerous and the most wicked angels who apparently procreated with humans who lived at the time of the flood. And we read that in Genesis 6, 1-4. So I'll read that. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man for ever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Verse 4, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, angels, many believe, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Many have sex with, procreate. 
Those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And a lot of people say that's where the Greek gods came from. These mighty men of renown, these demonic people, these hybrid people, these demigods as the Greeks call them. All right. So it appears that Satan's strategy was to corrupt the human race by angels procreating with humans until there were no more true humans. And then if there were no more true humans, there could not be a saviour born because all people would be part for an angel. So that's one theory. But what's more important is that whether or not there was a literal procreation between angels and humans, there were some very wicked angels at that time. And God did lock them up, and they are still locked up for our good and protection. So the first reference is 1 Peter three nineteen to 20 It says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It's not talking about people spirits, it's the demonic spirits. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Another verse that corresponds to this, 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, now the Greek there is Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. That's important, reserved for judgment, right? So, cast them down to hell. I just want to repeat this. The ancient Greek word translated hell here is Tartarus. Now, in Greek mythology, Tartarus was the lowest hell, a place of punishment for rebellious gods. Okay? Peter borrowed this word to speak of the place of punishment for the angels who sinned. And as I was saying, it's most likely the angels from Genesis 6, 1-2. And they're also described in Jude 6. Listen to what Jude 6 says. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, left their own abode. What does it mean? Again, it's more evidence that there was a literal angels and people producing a hybrid race. So now we say that it's quite likely that the angels will also be judged at this judgment of the great day. And I think it's the same as the great white throne judgment. So the fallen angels and the unbelieving people will be judged at the same time. Though it's not mentioned right here. I just wanted to bring that up. Now, before we get into going through the details in verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment, I want to quickly revise the two resurrections. So we'll start with what Jesus said in John 5, 28, 29, because it's important we understand that there's two resurrections. The first is a resurrection of life, and the second is a resurrection of condemnation. Okay? Because today we're looking at the second resurrection, the resurrection of condemnation. So John 5, 28, 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So notice what Jesus has said. There's two distinct resurrections, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. Now, also in verse 29 there in John 5, it says, Done good 
and done evil. So literally, in the Greek, it's done the good, one good, and done the evil, the one evil. So the is a definite article. It means there was only one thing. It's the good and the evil. So there's only one good thing we need to do to be a part of the resurrection of life. And there's only one bad thing or evil thing we need to do to be a part of the resurrection of condemnation. So what do you think that one thing is? Believe, yeah. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's got nothing to do with what you do. It's all to do with what you believe or don't believe. So the only thing that will make a difference to my eternal destiny is to repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. So what does it mean to repent? It means to humble yourself, admitting you're a sinner and being willing to change from doing what I want to doing what God wants. Now, remember that God is the one who actually does the change in us and that change only starts after we are saved. We must first come to God just as we are. As people say, what's and all, yeah? We need to be honest about our sinful condition, come to God as we are, and he will accept us. Okay, Because that's his plan, to change us, but we must be born again first. Now, to believe means that I put my trust in the fact that Jesus paid my fine, my sin debt, in full, once and for all. And you can see Romans 6.10, Hebrews 9.12 and 10.10. Now, belief without repentance is false conversion. It's one thing to know that Jesus died for your sins, and another thing to put your trust in it. Does that make sense? It's one thing to know that Jesus died for your sins and another thing to put your trust in it. So the fact that there's going to be two resurrections is restated in Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. I won't read them all. I'll just read a part from verse 5 where it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So verse 5 is talking about the second or last resurrection the one which happens after the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is the resurrection you want to avoid. This is the resurrection that leads to the second death, the eternal separation from fellowship with God. This is the resurrection of condemnation spoken of by Jesus in John 5, 28-29. And this is the resurrection we're going to study now, the great white throne judgment the judgment of condemnation, the final judgment, the judgment of all unbelievers at the end of the ages, at the end of the millennium. So let's read verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw a great white throne. What does this mean? Let's break it down. Well, it's great in status, power and authority. It's white in purity and holiness. And it's a throne in its kingly sovereignty. So, great white throne. And him who sat on it, who's sitting on the throne? Well, John 5, 22 to 27 tells us that the judge is Jesus. So this will be most likely Jesus sitting on the throne. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And verse 11, it says, The earth and the heaven fled away. There's no place found for them. 
There's no hiding from this judgment. No one can escape the judgment that it represents. And it appears that this judgment is just held in space. It's not on earth or heaven. <laughs> earth and heaven fled away because what happens next? God makes a new heavens and a new earth. And in the New Testament, like in Peter and that, it says that elements will dissolve with fervor and heat. So this could be that time when the earth and heaven is just disintegrates and just disappears. As fast as God made it, he can cause it to disappear. And then we're left with just this great white throne and all the people. It's kind of an amazing picture, isn't it? So no earth, no heaven, it's fled away. Now, we can rejoice because Christians will never appear before this great white throne. We'll be watching this, but not a part of it. It isn't because we can hide from it, no one can. The idea is that we are spared from this awesome throne of judgment because our sins are already judged in Jesus at the cross. We don't escape God's judgment. We satisfy God's judgment in Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice. So again, we don't escape God's judgment. We satisfy God's judgment. God satisfied his own judgment in Jesus when he died for us. And verses 12 and 13, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Now, it's interesting, the book of life, What's that? Well, Psalm 69.28 and Revelation 17.8 tells us about the book of life. Our names were written in it before the foundation of the world. So God knew about us. And he wrote everybody's names in this book. However, if you die as an unbeliever, your name is rubbed out of the book. Okay, If you die as an unbeliever, your name is rubbed out of the book. But if you're a believer, your name remains written in the book of life when you die and go to heaven. Okay, So believers, your name remains in the book. It's not rubbed out. But if you're not a believer, it's rubbed out when you die. You've lost your chance to repent and believe. You've sealed your fate. So we read previously in John 3.18 that those who don't believe are already condemned. So why are they being judged? What's the point if God already knows that they're guilty or condemned? Well, this is interesting. Not everyone might agree with this, but I think that because it seems that everyone will have a personal offense that they have dreamed up. Everyone will have their day in court, so to speak. And Jesus gives us a preview of this in Matthew 7, 21-23. This is Jesus talking about this second judgment, the great white throne judgment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what is that day? 
What's it talking about? What judgment is Jesus talking about? Well, he's condemning them. So it must be the great white throne judgment. This is the only one where people are condemned. So Jesus is talking about people saying to him, Lord, Lord, at the great white throne judgment. So it appears that people have a chance to speak for themselves. But Jesus will have an answer for them. Now, it also talks about the will of the Father in heaven. Because it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So the question is now, how do you get to heaven? What is the will of the Father? How do you do the will of the Father? Well, John 6, 28, 29 and 40. Then they said to him, to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? How good do I need to be to get to heaven, is what they're saying, right? Verse 29 says, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. The Messiah, the Saviour, yeah? And verse 40 goes on, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So it's all about believing in Jesus and being that first resurrection. So this is the only work, inverted commas, quotes, that God will accept, yeah? And it's not a work. Why isn't it a work? Because receiving something is not a work. It's something that we must choose to do, but it's not a work. It's not earning something, yeah? A work is doing something where you can earn something, yeah? If I go to work at my school that I work at, well, then they're obliged to give me a wage. But I'm doing something to get something, right? That's the way things generally work around here. But in God's kingdom, it's not like that. God gives us something for nothing. Grace, our salvation, is a free gift. It cannot be earned, but it must be received. And you can read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not something we can work for. It's not something you can boast about. It's a free gift. Now, back to the opportunity for this personal defense, as we read about in Matthew there. What it shows us, very unfortunately, is that there will be many religious people who did many good deeds and performed many religious rituals who missed the point and will therefore end up condemned. And look at what they are pleading. Look at their, their speech. What are they doing? They're proclaiming their own works, their own good works. They're saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Okay? So the problem is that no amount of good works will save you. You won't buy or bribe your way into heaven. You cannot pay your own fine. Why? Well, Jesus paid it for us. That's why he came, because we can't. Now, another quote from Hal Lindsey. This is serious, folks. If you are depending on anything to earn God's acceptance other than to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of his pardon, you're not going to make it. There will be no human merit accepted. Only the merits of Jesus Christ will get you in. And he continues, Now don't be confused here. Remember that God doesn't use sinless people. If that were the case, then God would have nobody to use. <laughs> 
All of us saved people still stumble and fall at times. We all do some dumb things. For example, David and Abraham. But there is one characteristic of the kind of person that God loves and uses, and that is one who never thinks of himself as deserving God's grace. And when he fails, he goes before God with the attitude, I never deserved anything, and I never will deserve anything. I come and throw myself upon your mercy and grace by faith in what Jesus Christ did for me. And God will pick you up off the floor, dust you off and say, get back into the game. Trust me and walk with me. That's God's way. So we don't have to be perfect to be used by God. We never will be perfect until we get a new body. So back to the great white throne judgment. Again, God will give every unbeliever a chance to present their case. And God will have written in his books all their deeds recorded. Oh boy. And God will judge those deeds according to the motive, not just the action. And remember that God's standard is perfection. Perfection in thought. Perfection in your motive. Perfection in your action. Perfection in your speech. Galatians 3.10 and James 2.10 tell us that we only have to break one law once to be considered guilty lawbreakers. So, this is just me thinking, okay, I think it's likely that God will remind the people as I stand before him, these unbelievers, of all the opportunities that they had to turn to God, all the times that the Holy Spirit convicted them, and all the times that God used people to try and reach them with the gospel. People, the unbelievers here, will live for eternity in the lake of fire, understanding that they didn't have to go there. There was only their foolish pride that had robbed them of eternal life, of knowing God and loving God and living in fellowship with God. So the important thing is that every human being is going to live somewhere forever. It's with God, in fellowship with God, or out of fellowship with God, in the lake of fire. Now, verses 12 and 13, it's a judgment and condemnation. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So standing before God, this is not a trial. This is not trying to determine if the person is guilty or not. The facts are in, this is the sentencing of someone already condemned. Because remember, to be a part of this judgment, you're already condemned. This is the sentencing. You're standing before God. And the dead were judged according to their works. So, if you're not listed in the book of life, then you're judged according to your works. Those who refuse to come to God by faith will, by default, be judged and condemned by their works. Now, it's only fair that there are degrees of punishment for unbelievers according to their works. You read that in Matthew eleven, twenty to 24 And here is where they are sentenced to their specific eternal punishment. Again, it's only fair that a man with more sin receive greater torment or punishment than someone with less sin. It doesn't change their destiny or the length of time they will suffer, but it does seem 
that it will determine the degree of their suffering for eternity. So God is fair. And in verse 13 it says that sea gave up the dead who are in it. And I often wonder what this meant, but I read that commentator's opinion was that it represents the place of unburied bodies and the emphasis on the universal character of judgment. Everybody is included. And then 14 and 15 in Revelation 12, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is really cool. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. The last echoes of sin, this is David Guzik, the last echoes of sin are now eliminated. Death is the result of sin and it is gone. Hades is the result of death and it is gone. The last vestiges of sin's unlawful dominion are done away with. And verse 15, the lake of fire, this is the real hell, the place of everlasting torment. Torments in Hades or Sheol is only a temporary place of torment for unbelievers until they stand before the great white throne judgment in their new body. And verse 14, it says, this is the second death. You do not want to be a part of the second death. This is eternal separation from fellowship with God. All unbelievers in the new physical body will be suffering for eternity in hell, the lake of fire. So I want to finish by reading Isaiah 66 verses 22 to 24. It's a very sad, sad verse. This is how Isaiah finishes his book. It's not really a nice way to finish the book, but it's a warning for us. So talking about Israel first off, as surely as my new heavens and my earth will remain. So the context is new heavens and the new earth. So will you, Israel, always be my people. With a name that will never disappear, says the Lord. So that means that Israel will always be God's people. Going into even the new heavens and new earth. Verse 23. All humanity will come to worship me from week to week and from month to month. And as they go out, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For the worm that devours them will never die, and the fire that burns them will never go out. All who pass by will view them with utter horror. So again, pointing to the everlasting, eternal, never-ending consequences of rejecting God. And there's a phrase I want to remind you of. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. If you're born physically and then born spiritually, born into the kingdom of God, then you'll only die once. You'll only die a physical death. But if you're only born once, if you're only born physically and you refuse the second birth, the spiritual birth, then you will die physically and then you will partake in the second death. You will die twice. So this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Will you love others enough to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all those who God leads you to? Freely you have received, freely give. God has given you eternal life freely. So God is calling us to be his ambassadors. It's the great commission. Go preach the gospel, share the gospel, and make disciples of all men. Do this in my name, says Jesus. In my authority, I've given you all authority. And Paul prayed for boldness. So like in Ephesians 6.19, Paul prays for boldness. So 
Become equipped and pray for boldness and share the gospel because this is how people are saved from going to the lake of fire. Ephesians 6.19 And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words to say so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news, the gospel, is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So Father, I just pray that you give us a heart to reach out to the lost, a heart that cares for people enough to speak to them. Lord, that we would care enough to equip ourselves with the knowledge we need, with the tools we need to evangelize correctly, effectively, using your truth, your words, your ways. And we would overcome our fear, overcome our anxiety, overcome our fear of rejection, and just speak to people anyway. Give us a heart which is loving and caring, but also bold. We pray, and we pray that you use us in your kingdom to proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.